Hey, Chris. What's up, Jason? Just uh, wrapping up before vacation. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we'll have some fun, right? Yeah, it's yeah, we're going to Vegas. It's weird though because like we're ahead on recording, so like by the time this is out, I'll be either dead or back from Vegas. So. You you make us sound like responsible adults. It's exciting times. Uh, how are you? I'm doing good. You know, staying indoors. It's cold out, so you know, and then keep it warm. You know me staying indoors if it's warm out too. <laughs> uh, today I am. So very excited, as I know you are, uh, to bring our guest on the show. Uh, Adam, do you mind giving a quick introduction? Hey, yeah, sure. So my name's Adam Wathen. I'm a software developer and entrepreneur who does a lot of stuff in mostly kind of the Laravel ecosystem. And I have also uh, am the creator of Tailwind CSS. Thanks for having me on, guys. We're glad yeah, to we're have you. Really excited. Uh, so I guess we'll just kind of dive right in. Um, how did you get started in programming? Cool. Yeah. I can think every time I get asked this question, there's like a couple of different stories that come to mind and I can never really think of exactly what order they happened in, but um, probably my earliest real memory is when I was a kid, I was like super obsessed with pro wrestling and I would uh, download all these different like pro wrestling simulators online where you could like create wrestlers and they were just these text-based things where they would like play out matches and you could see who won and stuff and in my search for like the perfect wrestling simulator one day I came across this like blog post that was like how to create your own wrestling simulator in QBasic I was like oh this is interesting so that kind of is what got me started just like playing around and realizing that you could make the computer do stuff uh, with like conditional logic and stuff like that. So um, that was kind of like the where I first got introduced to it. And then uh, when I was in school, like in like grade five, grade six, uh, we would make like games and hypercard on the Macs at school. And there was some cool stuff that you could do there where learn some more programming stuff and sort of like event driven stuff and how to react to the mouse and keyboard and do cool stuff there. Um, then, you know, it just got into the web and browsing the web and spending all my time on it and wanting to make my own websites and stuff. So I figured out how to do that. And eventually started taking uh, programming courses in uh, high school once they started offering them. Um, so did that, went to university for computer science, uh, only did a year of that and then dropped out to focus on other stuff. Cause it just wasn't into the whole university vibe. And then, uh, I was recording bands for a living for a while after that. Um, this was a few years later and I found myself wanting to like add features to the software I was using. And the tool I was using was this program called Reaper created by the guy who originally created Winamp. And it's a really, really hackable like audio editing software. So um, you can like write plugins and stuff for it in Python or C++. So I started like kind of teaching myself just enough Python to try and write some of these little extensions that I wanted for it. And eventually I got to the point where I found I was having more fun sort of trying to enhance this tool than I was actually recording bands. And it kind of reminded me of my uh, sort of passion for programming that I'd kind of let go since I was in university, you know, like six years prior to that or five years prior to that. So then I went back to college for software engineering, which was a much different environment than university and much more practical, uh, much more 
almost like apprenticeship like in terms of like doing like real projects and stuff like that instead of just listening to lectures and that kind of resonated with me a lot more so stuck with that um you know did that for two years and then uh found myself in the world of uh, web application development working for agencies and stuff so that's kind of the the whole history before we get to more or less where i am now so is that when you started getting into laravel and php and stuff yeah, I started getting into Laravel in college, basically. So by the time uh, we were in like our second year, we had a lot of very self-directed projects from a technology perspective. Um, so they'd be like web-based, but you could basically choose whatever you wanted. Most kids were doing stuff with um, uh, the .NET, like MVC3 framework thing. Um, but I was like the only kid in the class that had a Mac instead of a Windows computer. And I didn't really love like booting up bootcamp or whatever to work under the windows environment. So I was trying to figure out like, what can I do natively on my Mac? And, um, in my head, I just kind of had it like the only tools that you can use for building like web stuff. And this was based on my like memory of web development from my teenage years. It was like, well, if you want to accept a form submission, you either do that in like JSP, ASP or PHP. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, why don't I like, check out like what's going on in the PHP world? And this was like well before I realized that actually you can write basically any language on the server. So this is why I wasn't like exposed to things like Rails or anything right away. Um, so I just started looking into PHP and learned about like CodeIgniter. And this was like pretty early days for Laravel. I think like Laravel 3 had just come out. So uh, I read some tutorials and stuff for that and kind of picked that up. And eventually, by the time I kind of got exposed to some of the other ecosystems that were out there, like Ruby and Rails, for example, I was just like too productive with PHP to leave. (laughs) So I've been sort of shackled here ever since. That, we were like looking at Laravel at the exact same time. So like 3.0 had just come out is when I started getting into Ruby. And I was like, I remember like trying to Google articles like Laravel versus Rails. And like Laravel was so fresh, there weren't those articles. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, I'm so glad to hear you talk about the wrestling simulator because (laughs) I totally did those as a kid. I didn't write my own, but I thought those were the greatest thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty fun stuff. Most of the ones I went to were like on GeoCities. Yeah, there was like a bunch of like online, like wrestling role-playing stuff, which is so funny to think about now, but... uh, uh, yeah. And people would like, you know, they would create their own characters or whatever. And then whoever was running the site would run like the simulations in there. And like, I think the one I remember most was called like Zeus. And there was another one called like, um, TNM, I think, which was like paid software. So I could never get access to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of funny. So the first time uh, I had an opportunity to meet you, it was at Laracon 2016. And I had heard you several times mention like different things in the Ruby, uh, the Ruby world, I guess, different like ideas and patterns. that's like kind of popular in Ruby and rails. Yeah. And so I was just kind of curious, uh, as like a PHP developer and, uh, all the other things you work on, how has Ruby kind of influenced that? Yeah. So I think, um, I don't do as much like backend web development these days as I, I used to, but when I was like really in my 
peak of like trying to learn everything that I could and building lots of stuff on the back end, either at agencies or for school or, or whatever. Um, Rails sort of was this ecosystem I kind of discovered by accident somehow, just like browsing around like articles and tutorials on the internet where it was like, man, it feels like every problem that people are discussing in like the PHP world, like people were talking about this like five years ago in the Ruby world. And there's all these like best practices that have emerged and all these different solutions and stuff. So when I started to realize that I started paying like a lot of closer attention and like going through some of these like old articles and, you know, reading everything on like the ThoughtBot blog or like watching like the destroy all software screencasts and stuff like that. Um, so I, I like to think that like basically all the interesting things I learned about like web application architecture, I basically learned from studying the rails and Ruby ecosystem and trying to sort of port that knowledge over to what I was doing with PHP and Laravel. Um, and yeah, I mean like th that's basically it. I, in some ways I wish I had discovered rails and Ruby before I had got started working with PHP, uh, because I think some of the ways people do things like resonate a lot more with my personality than the way people do things in PHP and PHP people are trying to turn the language into like Java basically. Um, whereas I feel like, uh, the Ruby ecosystem is much, uh, more interested in like small talk style OOP and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's always been interesting for, for me to sort of follow that ecosystem and see what I can sort of bring into my day to day working with the tools that I work with. That's awesome. So I, I wasn't really planning on talking about this, but I am curious now that you brought it up uh, when you say that people are trying to make PHP more like Java. I, uh, I listened to, I can't remember what it's called. The little like 10 minute podcast Taylor Otwell puts out every week. Oh yeah. I listened to it this morning. He was talking about how I guess PHP unit, the new version requires you to have like types. Yeah. They force you to like, um, add a return type for your setup method. Um, so now instead of just being able to say like public function setup, you have to say public function setup space colon space void and specify that it has no return value. And because you have to like extend the core PHP unit test case class to write your own tests, that's like a breaking change for anyone using PHP and on anything. Everyone has to go back and add that type annotation to all their um, setup methods since it extends that class. Is this kind of like an ongoing thing? Like, are the, is the community like kind of all like a lot of the majority are for it or is it kind of like, does it seem? Yeah, I would say it? like the overwhelming majority are, are pushing for uh, more type information in the language, which um, I mean, I understand it at the same time. I think, uh, I think a lot of it maybe stems from like PHP being the only language that people have worked with and not really, um, and they're maybe trying to push things too far and into the other direction under this like sort of assumption that like uh, it will automatically be better. You know what I mean? Whereas um, the, the sort of type systems that are more interesting to me are things like crystal where the funny thing about PHP is like it, they're trying to make it like strongly or statically typed, but it can't be because no matter what, it's still a dynamic language. And you're never going to get type errors until a runtime, no matter what, because there's no compile step. Um, so what you're doing is you're like littering your code with all these type annotations that don't do anything until code with the wrong type actually executes and blows up. 
And then you look at something like Crystal, which to me is like the exact opposite. It like is statically typed compiled language, but their goal is to like avoid having you type the type annotations as often as possible. So there's like barely any actual type annotations in Crystal code, except there are way more guarantees than you have in PHP where there's type annotations everywhere. So I don't know. Um, that's one of those things that just makes me feel like I'm uh, I'm pushing against like trying to swim upstream too much in that regard. Um, so I just don't really get involved. <laughs> Whereas uh, if I was in like the Ruby world, I think, you know, there's less arguing about like, oh, should we make Ruby more statically typed? Like I know there has been some stuff like they talked about Ruby three having like some sort of like fancy kind of uh invisible type system and stuff like that i don't know where that's really at but in general i think people are sort of on board with more of the dynamic meta programming stuff they like to have a little bit more fun with it there whereas in php everyone's trying to sort of lock things down and sort of be the code police as much as possible yeah i know uh stripe has i don't think they've publicly released this yet but a tool called sorbet that was to help, you know, enforce types in Ruby or whatever. And they had, there's some like website for it that you can fiddle with it, but you know, it's kind of like comment annotations. So it's not quite, um, you know, I, I really like, like you mentioned the crystal stuff. Cause I played with that a little bit too. And it's like, well, this is kind of the ideal where you only have to enforce types when you need to, and it can kind of interpret that um, in the lightest way possible. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Crystal, I haven't actually written any, but in studying it, it seems like, yeah, it seems like what I would want in terms of it'll do all the type checks for you, but you don't have to just, you don't have to type them everywhere and it'll like intelligently create like, um, you know, like union types and stuff like that for you uh, based on what it detects you're actually doing. So yeah, it seems like pretty pretty clever way to sort of create a static type system without feeling like so heavy handed while still actually providing more real type safety than we get in PHP anyways. Yeah. And, um, even isn't, uh, view three going to be like TypeScript behind the scenes. I think they're writing it in TypeScript, but, um, that won't mean that you have to like consume it in TypeScript. Right. Is there more of a, you know, direction going to types in JavaScript. I haven't really paid attention too much. Yeah, I think um, probably yes. Uh, Not quite the same as it is in PHP necessarily, but definitely like type system or type script adoption seems to be growing more and more for sure. I kind of feel like it makes sense if you're building a framework like that, just to give more sort of, uh, clear errors saying like, Hey, we expected this and you you gave us something else. Um, Mm -hmm. that can be helpful, but at the same time, like it may not be still as explicit or friendly as it needs to be sometimes. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's totally fine thing to do. I think it's, uh, it's useful as documentation for new contributors and stuff too. You can kind of more easily understand what's happening in the code. Sometimes if you can, if it's right there telling you like what, type is expected what type is returned makes it a little bit easier to learn the code base but yeah so you said earlier you're not doing i guess as much back-end programming now yeah um when you do still do back-end programming uh are you still mostly cranking things out in laravel and php 
Yeah, that's still kind of the stack that I choose, mostly because of um, just how productive I am in that environment. It's hard to it's hard to just grab something totally new and feel like you're moving super slow when you're excited about trying to solve a specific problem, you know? So um, maybe one day I'll find like a good excuse to start getting really proficient in another environment. But uh, for now, that's still uh, my weapon of choice. Yeah. So I'm curious, like a, a dream situation here, like what's your dream kind of uh, backend language? If I, if there was like no Laravel anymore and I had to choose something new, um, I think it would be a toss up between like JavaScript and like Node on the back end, just because there's something nice about being able to just write one language uh, or Elixir probably. Uh, because I've done, I haven't done anything really serious with Elixir, but I've done a bunch of like, have you ever used like exorcism.io? It's like a cool site for just like trying to learn a new language with a bunch of different problems and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, so I did, uh, a, did a bunch of that elixir stuff on exorcism and it was like a really it's actually a really fun experience because it's such a totally different type of language um and kind of like stretched different parts of my brain that i don't normally get to work using the tools that i normally use uh so i think it would be fun to do something like that like a purely functional language on the back end and even if i was going to do node i would probably try and approach it in sort of a functional way just as a a fun sort of challenge um, but yeah, those are sort of the two things that are most interesting to me. Like I think Ruby and rails was also a great, um, kind of ecosystem too. But, uh, these days I'm, if I had the choice, I think I would like to push myself more in the functional direction just because I feel like there's a lot more for me to learn there because it's still so fresh for me. So one of the things Chris and I talk about a lot, uh, together, not on this podcast and also kind of on this podcast is like how jealous we are of like Laravel in the ecosystem mm. because like rails is great and like mature, but like Laravel solves all these like little problems that like always keep coming up. Like whenever I like go to build an application and it just like, I don't know it. uh I just look at it with envy, which is. Yeah. I think it has probably the most fleshed out, um, ecosystem of really any like comparable backend framework rails is definitely the closest one. Uh, but that would be like the worst part about switching to something else is there's just no tools that like the ecosystem is just not as flushed out. Like if I had to choose a backend node framework right now, I wouldn't even know what to pick. Like express isn't really even a framework. You know what I mean? You still have to kind of do everything yourself. I think um, there's Adonis.js, which looks pretty cool, but it also kind of looks like so heavily inspired by Laravel that I almost wonder if um, it, it makes me kind of think like, is this like the the best way you could possibly design a JavaScript framework? Like, it's is or are you sort of like carrying baggage from PHP because you're so inspired by this other framework instead of like sort of rethinking things from the ground up? What makes the most sense? based on how we do things in this ecosystem. And then with like Elixir, there's Phoenix, but I'm sure there's still like such a, a lack of, you know, the, you know, the equivalent of gems for all the different stuff that you would want to be able to do without having to write it all yourself um, in the Elixir world, because it's still really young. So yeah, I think uh, no matter what, you'd find yourself having to write a lot of code by hand 
than normally you'd be able to pull in some battle tested library for. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, new things, um, do you want to give us an uh, introduction to uh, what you're working on now, which is Tailwind CSS? Yeah, sure. So uh, Tailwind CSS is, I call it a utility first CSS framework. Um, so kind of unlike maybe a more traditional approach to CSS where you're sort of writing your HTML and sort of applying, you know, quote unquote, semantic class names to things based on like what the content is. So maybe it's like div class profile and div class profile image, that sort of thing. And then opening up your CSS file and sort of, you know, creating classes based on the names defined in the HTML and styling them however you want sort of flips the whole thing on its head where the idea is that your CSS um, is as reusable as possible and as unopinionated about where it's being used as possible and you're just actually applying the classes in your HTML that give you the appearance that you want. So sort of blasphemous and sort of heresy probably to a lot of people who um, drank the semantic CSS Kool-Aid. Uh, but I find it to be a pretty uh, productive way of working. So, um, yeah, it's 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 interesting, I guess, how it kind of works. It's a, it's a post-CSS plugin, which I don't know that there's really much else out there that's like a full-fledged CSS framework distributed as a post-CSS plugin. So to use it, you kind of just dump it in your post-CSS plugin chain, right where you'd have like auto-prefixer, for example. And uh, there's a configuration file where we let you sort of specify your design systems. You sort of, it's, it's kind of equivalent to like your bootstrap variables file or something where you specify like uh, all the font sizes that you want, all the colors that you want to have in your color palette, what sort of your spacing scale is for your margin and padding, uh, what any sizing scale you want to specify if you, you know, need to apply widths and heights to things, um, what your uh, different typefaces that you want to use. So like a list of font families that you want to use. And then in your CSS, you just drop these little markers. Like uh, we have these custom at rules that they're called. So imagine like a media query where you see like at media, whatever, uh, but we do like at tailwind and then just a string at the end that represents sort of the bucket of CSS that you want to dump out. So um, there's like three right now. There's at tailwind preflight, which is our base styles, at tailwind components, which is where any component styles get rendered, and at tailwind utilities. So the idea is that in your CSS file, you sort of place these three directives, one at the very beginning, uh, the components one sort of goes in the middle, utilities one goes at the end, and you can put any custom CSS sort of in between those directives wherever it makes sense. And then the post CSS plugin basically just rips through your CSS and finds those directives and rips them out and replaces them with all the generated CSS based on the information that you've kind of given Tailwind in your configuration file about your design system. And that generates tons and tons of these little utility classes like BG red or text small or uh, underline or all these Flexbox utilities. And they're all generated responsively too. So you can, apply different styles at different breakpoints. So if you wanted to have something that was red on small screens, it would just be BG red. If you wanted that to change to green, once the browser hit like a medium screen size, you would add MD colon BG green. And if you wanted to change again on large screens, you do LG colon BG blue or something. Um, so basically every class in the whole thing is responsive by default, but that's all configurable anyways, even if you want to change it. Um, so yeah, the idea is you basically get thousands of these little classes, 
you use those to sort of design in your HTML. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the brief introduction. Yeah, I I don't remember when I first used it, but um, I remember, you know, I think we've all probably had the experience of like, you install Bootstrap and then you want to customize it. But, you know, you get down to, okay, we've tweaked a bunch of the main components, but like you can see very clearly when someone has gone and taken Bootstrap and customized everything except for the buttons because you have to go undo a bunch of styles to get them to look the way you want. Yeah. And that like was just like, okay, we want to dump in, you know, all of Bootstrap and then tweak it on top. And it just didn't work out as easy as you would think it would be. And like Tailwind kind of starting from scratch and building up to that makes it so much easier, at least from my experience, to, you know, go build your custom design thing, but also still produce the same component level things like button, button primary, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that's um that's one thing that we definitely intentionally designed the framework to fight against is anytime you have to pull in a framework and um a change that you want to do involves like trying to undo stuff that's already there it feels like you're sort of fighting a losing battle um css is like much more straightforward and maintainable when you're building up like you said instead of having to try and like revert styles that have been put in place for you so we try really hard with tailwind to make sure we never provide anything that's applying um enough of an opinion that you might ever want to undo that opinion which in practice means we end up not providing any classes that really do more than one css property except for a, a couple places and even those um i might reconsider in the next kind of breaking release um yeah how has the response been to the framework uh, pretty good really i mean uh, i think we've got I don't know. Let's check the old GitHub. Um, definitely thousands of stars on GitHub, like almost 9,000 stars on GitHub. It's been out for about a year and a half now um, since like the very, very first alpha. And right now I'm kind of working on trying to get 1.0 this month. Um, so yeah, the response has been um, been pretty good. It's It's a pretty controversial way to write your CSS and your markup. But there was a bunch of other tools that sort of came before Tailwind that took a similar approach, but were just not quite as easy to customize that I think um, took the brunt of the sort of trolling and, uh, you know, um, anger from the people who thought it was like a horrible idea, like Tachyons, for example. Uh, really, the guys who who worked on that definitely took a, a lot of the hate uh, up front so i kind of got to sneak in behind them and not really get as blasted as hard um but yeah in general the response has been uh has been really good lots of people seem to love using it it's one of those tools where actually i mean maybe it's like the only tool i can think of like this besides other comparable css frameworks where your immediate reaction when you see it is wow this looks like the worst thing i've ever seen but then after you use it it's like wow i can't imagine ever going back to working the way that I was before because I feel so much more productive working this way. Um, yeah, it's like it's yeah. like the the initial thing is like you just see a bunch of gibberish, you know, C CSS classes everywhere. But I think that people don't realize you can just refactor that back once you've decided on what you want your consistent styles to be like. You know, you can just do the at apply stuff and create your button class 
but you have the freedom like you, in your videos that I got addicted to watching those where you like rebuilt Coinbase and stuff. Yeah. Um, those are just so fast to go through and iterate through that where, you know, I remember I'd have to just it, to take a designer's PSD or something. I'd have to just go manually write out my selector and then go find the, you know, write that out. And then if you did any sort of um, nesting too with SCSS or whatever, um, you could work yourself into a corner where you're like, okay, I need this widget now on a different page and I'm going to have to pull all of this out to a higher level instead and stuff. And like that just, um, I guess it's just sort of this gut reaction of like, you're kind of just polluting all your HTML, but it's people don't realize that that's like step one, but step two is to go back and refactor it. Yeah. And, um, and I don't even know if you necessarily have to refactor all the time, but um, I try to like, let it be sort of very pain driven. Right. So if I use nine classes to create a button and then I find myself using those same nine classes in three other places to create a button that looks the same, then yeah, I'm going to want to solve that duplication problem. Right. And yeah, like you mentioned, we have this concept and tailwind of basically giving you the ability to compose new classes out of existing utility classes using this add apply directive basically so you could basically copy and paste the class list from your html head over to your css and create a new component class like button primary and then just say add apply and paste in the list of classes you were using in the html and then replace the classes in the html with button primary and now you have a single source of truth um, for all that stuff. But there's plenty of other things I find where I just never actually run into any pain. So like a classic example for me is like a nav bar. Um, I basically never end up with any sites where I've extracted nav bar classes because the markup for the nav bar is usually only ever written once, like in some sort of master layout or something. So because I never actually get bit by the fact that there's like duplication, I'm trying to maintain the same class list in multiple places, my nav bar ends up just being littered with like flex, align self, justify between PX4, like all those classes just live right there because they never get duplicated. Um, I think the other thing to consider is like depending on what you're building and what sort of tech stack you're working with, um, CSS might not even be the best place to solve your duplication problems. So if you're building something with like React or Vue and uh, you're kind of doing everything at this like component level already, well, maybe you don't even need to create a button primary class. Maybe you just need a primary button component and all the utility classes live inside that component. So they're still only defined in one place. Um, And then anywhere you want to reuse the primary button, you're actually reusing the component and not reusing like the CSS class. So it really depends on what you're doing. But yeah, in general, I just try not to worry too much about trying to create abstractions until they sort of prove that they're necessary. And then what abstraction I create sort of depends on the project, whether it's like a very client-side rendered component-driven thing, then maybe I won't really create custom classes for a lot of stuff. Uh, But if it's something that's server-rendered, like more of a traditional Rails app, then a lot of times it makes a lot more sense to create a component class in your CSS, like button primary, than it does to try and create like ERB partials for like every button and every input or something silly like that. So... Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, reiterating on what Chris said too, like, so when I, the, I guess the thing that frustrates me the most is like, 
I'll build something with Tailwind and then I'll go back to a project where we don't have those like utility classes. And I'm just like, this is like miserable now. Yeah. You don't realize like how bad and painful it was until you kind of get used to doing it the fast way where you're literally just working in the HTML and you can kind of see your changes immediately. And I think the thing that um, people don't realize is the biggest benefit until they actually use it is just like all the overhead of trying to come up with names for things like goes away. Um, Because there's so many times in CSS where because of like how complex it is trying to style things with CSS, um, you end up with like all these elements, the extra elements that you have to create wrapper elements and stuff like that. And it's like, what the hell class name do I give this? It's like profile header dash dash wrapper, you know, like you spend all this like um, decision-making power trying to like come up with names for these classes and trying to figure out in your head, like, Oh, how generic should this class name be? Or how specific should it be? Um, and it can really wear you down when you're kind of building out designs. Uh, whereas with tailwind, I find like, I'm just completely unburdened by that because it's not, I don't have to come up with names for anything at all. And when I do, it's a little more obvious what the name should be because it's the extraction is like being driven by, some duplication where it's like, okay, well, what do these two things have in common? Well, they're both, you know, a card. Okay. Well, I'll make a card class or something. So, yeah. Yeah. Like by the time you get to that point, it's like you're reusing it so much. It's clear what it does. Like, yeah, for sure. Uh, a question I'm interested just to kind of hear your thought on is like, there's like the never ending debate of like server rendered HTML versus like single page applications. Right. Uh, and in like the rails land, uh, like, I mean, you think like DHH base camp, like they're very yeah. against, like they're very like pro server rendered HTML. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, like your thoughts on like, like how do you view that debate as someone who does a lot of like view work? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, I think in general, historically I've, kind of stuck with the server side rendered crowd, right? Like I definitely think there's a lot of value in what the Basecamp folks preach. It makes so much sense to me that they kind of try and localize everything on the server, even for their mobile apps and stuff, because it lets them sort of maintain one code base with a small team. Whereas if you're trying to build an SPA, then you sort of have to rebuild that client for mobile and stuff like that. It can just be a little bit nutty. One sec. <coughs> um, but at the same time, like I'm sort of intrigued by the idea of trying to build a full client side app and I've just never done it before. I do a lot of stuff with Vue, but I use Vue more as like a way to enhance server rendered HTML for the most part. So I'm still doing most stuff on the server. And then if there's like some little place on the page that needs to be kind of highly interactive, I'll kind of replace the server or rendered HTML there with a, a Vue component. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we've done a lot of that uh, at my previous job. We we had actually like let Rails render the page and then React would take over just like certain components. And that worked yeah. really well. I think that's how Facebook does it with React too. <laughs> on, on like at least like their timeline and stuff. I think they have a lot of like um, React SPA stuff that's a little bit more internal. Like I think like the ads manager is probably like a single page app and stuff. But yeah. I think it's a totally valid 
way to go. And I think it's a simpler way to go in a lot of cases. I think there's so much complexity that comes along with trying to do everything on the client. But at the same time, I also feel like the barrier or sorry, like the threshold for me wanting to put everything on the client is like annoyingly low. Like there's there's very seemingly trivial problems you can run into where it's easy to think, man, if this was like an SPA, this wouldn't even be a problem. Like trying to maintain state between like two sort of distant parts of a template or something. Like that's something I find myself doing with Vue a lot is say there's like two parts on a page where like clicking a button in the bottom left um, has to trigger some change somewhere in the top right. Sort of the idiomatic way to make sure that the state is synchronized is to make sure there's like a parent component that holds the state and like passes that as a prop to both of those components, which means that like you have to find like the nearest common ancestor between both these elements that need to synchronize state and turn that into a view component. And a lot of the time it's like pretty quickly, it feels like the whole page needs to be a view component. Um, or you're trying to do something like something I was complaining about on Twitter the other day is with like the tailwind docs. I really want it. And, and it does work this way right now, but it was a pain for us to build it where when you click an item on the sidebar, you don't lose your sidebar scroll position as like the stuff on the right updates. And that's really hard to do if you're doing a full page refresh, but if you're just updating a portion of the page on the client, like totally trivial. So yeah, I don't know. There's an interesting approach that I've seen a, a friend of mine doing recently too, which kind of seems like the best of both worlds with a little bit of downside, but in general seems to be pretty cool where he is, he's not doing any server-side templates, but he's still doing like server-side routing and treating everything as like full page refreshes and stuff. So every page is like a view component. Um, and every time you navigate to a new page, the server just returns basically nothing in terms of HTML, just like the component that needs to render with a bunch of the data that it needs to use. Um, and that kind of lets him make the app feel very like SPA ish in a sense where like you can have the rich client side interactions and, and everything on the page can kind of communicate nicely, but you don't have all the weird complexity where you have to kind of talk to an API to get all your data and figure out how you're going to do API authentication or um, deal with like authorization rules where you have to like duplicate them on the client and on the server and stuff. Instead, he's able to just like grab all the data he needs in a controller attach that to the view that's rendering the component and just basically render this giant JSON blob that goes in as prompts to the view component that's already sort of pre-formatted exactly the way the component needs. So he doesn't really even have to build an API. Instead, it's almost like his view components can source their data directly from the database on it, on the initial load of each page. But then the trade-off is, of course, you're booting up view on every single page that you navigate to, whereas in an SPA, you only pay that like boot up cost once. But at the same time, the way that I do things already, where I'm only just like using view for a little widget on each page, I'm already booting up view on every page load in that regard anyways. So it's certainly no worse than what I'm doing there. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, like an interesting uh, hybrid approach that I've seen a couple people playing with. Yeah, that's really fascinating because that would like take some of that complexity away. But like, there, like you said, there's trade-offs, but... It's an interesting approach. Yeah. I would like to, uh, with our time left, sh- time left, shift gears a little bit. Uh, you are now full time working for yourself. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of like to hear more about that. Kind of like, when did you know that you wanted to like build products or like teach? Yeah, sure. Um, I've, I've always wanted to like make stuff on the internet and I've always really enjoyed like creating guides and stuff like that. Like I can even remember as a kid getting up early in the morning to like work on my like doom tutorial in like notepad on my old like Acer 386, you know, desktop computer. Um, and I've always just really enjoyed like trying to create like polished documents. I don't know. can't really explain why. Uh, but I was always like, I was loved going to like gamefacts.com for example and seeing like all the crazy tutorials people made with all their like ascii artwork in their headers of these like guides and stuff like that that stuff was always really cool to me so that's kind of like one of my earliest memories of like being obsessed with creating you know what is essentially like educational content on the internet um and i i don't know i i don't really know like when it exactly happened but I've always thought it would be cool to write like a book or something. Right. And I kind of wanted to write a book when I was working in the audio engineering space. I thought maybe it'd be cool to put together like an ebook. And then when I got heavily back into programming um, and I was like reading books by other people and stuff, I thought it'd be cool to kind of make one of these myself. Um, So yeah, eventually I did write my first book, which was this book called refactoring the collections, which basically teaches PHP developers how to do, what everyone in Ruby already does with like the innumerable module essentially and like refactoring from like a bunch of gnarly loops and stuff into more functional transformations like map and reduce and chunk and each cons and all some of the more obscure kind of interesting ones. Um, so I put that book together sort of in evenings and weekends in the spring of 2016 Um uh, just before me and my wife got married and before we had any kids. So had time to work on it then. And, uh, yeah, I released that book and it, it did a lot better than I expected in terms of sales. And I had this idea to do this TDD course. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do originally, but I thought it was too ambitious and I wouldn't be able to do that on nights and weekends. So I did this book instead. So when the book did really well, I thought "Hmm, maybe this is a good maybe this is an opportunity to actually make this testing course that I want to make because I could leave my job and sort of use this money from the book to sort of pay my own salary while I get this course done so I can work on it full time. So basically right after the book came out, uh, a couple weeks later, I uh, left my job to sort of work on this course full time. And I released that about seven months later or six months later. And that did uh, really well, like really exceeded my expectations and since then, I've just been fortunate enough to be able to kind of keep doing that stuff. So about a year and a half after that, I put out a view course, um, advanced view component design. And then most recently, uh, me and my friend Steve Shoger just released a book in December, kind of a book and video series and kind of set of resources um, to help teach design to developers called uh, Refactoring UI. And that's also done really well. So yeah, so far, I've just been pretty lucky in that um the content I've created has resonated with people and has uh, sold well enough to let me kind of keep doing this stuff full time. That's awesome. So was it last year you spoke at microconf? Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. A microconf starter last year. Uh, for those who don't know, microconf is 
a conference for entrepreneurs, I guess is a good way to describe it. Yep. Um, I'm curious, what did you give a lot of technical talks? How was it giving a non-technical talk? Yeah, that was, it was definitely different for sure. Um, definitely more nervous because uh, you're trying to teach something that is a little bit out of your wheelhouse in a sense. So normally I do a lot of like live coding talks and stuff that are really technical. So this was much more like telling a story with slides and stuff, which is, which is different and trying to come across like an expert in a, in a field that I haven't before. Um, but I think it went really well overall. Um, I was happy with like the delivery of the talk and people seemed to really enjoy the content and, and get a lot out of it. So, uh, yeah, it, it went really well. It was definitely made me a little bit nervous cause I'd never given a talk like that before, but all turned out fine. Awesome. That's, that's all I have. Uh, Chris, do you have any other questions? Um, the only other one I had was, uh, just about, tailwind 1.0 what uh what are we looking at seeing change wise on that yeah so um nothing too 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 crazy basically just uh the plan is to now that we've got kind of a year and a half of using the framework in public kind of under our belts looking back at some of the decisions we made and making sure that we're happy with everything that's there and uh, making any breaking changes uh while we still have the chance based on you know, anything that we think we would have done differently now. So one of the things I've been working on for the last few weeks is really nailing down like an updated config file structure uh, because the original config file um, was sort of designed not anticipating some features that got added to Tailwind that have kind of muddied things up a bit. So sort of reorganizing things a bit there and trying to make it uh, a little bit more structured and a little bit more simple. Other than that, um, there might be a couple class names that we revisit. Um, like one that I have in mind in particular, we have these border radius classes that I think right now are called rounded. I, I'm thinking about just changing those to just be radius because I'm always tripped up trying to figure out if it's rounded none or rounded zero. And I can never remember if like the default rounded class is like the smallest one or like a middle one. So I think it might be more intuitive to just change that to like radius zero, radius one, radius two, radius three, that sort of thing. So that's something I'm going to be uh, kind of exploring. Um, I don't think there's any really like big changes other than that. I'm adding the ability for, for the plugin system to let people register base styles from plugins. So if you have like base typography styles that you want to share from project to project and you want to be able to do it as an NPM package instead of CSS, I'm making that possible. So that's kind of like it really maybe going through and thinking about some of the config file key name changes. Like I might change some of the, some of the stuff in the config file. Like we have things like text sizes where it's like a list of all your text sizes. I think I might try and uh, make some of those names closer to the CSS properties. So they're a little bit more familiar to people. Um, but stuff that should be pretty easy for us to like automate the upgrade process anyways, like give us your old config file. We'll spit out a new one for you with all the changes. Um, other than that, like the, the other big project for Tailwind 1.0 is just really polishing the documentation and writing some new guides for kind of common things that people want to be able to do, like how to get started with different frameworks, like, um, how to do how to use it with Vue, how to use it with React, how to use it in a Rails app, stuff like that. 
Um, and just kind of making sure that I feel like the documentation is really polished before we kind of tag uh, 1.0 so we can have kind of a, a flashy release. And then we'll focus on like new feature development and stuff in like upcoming uh, point releases. So really just focused on making sure that before we tag it, there's no more uh, breaking changes remaining that I'd like to make because uh, I really don't want to have to tag 2.0 like six months down the road or something. In a perfect world, 1.0 will be kind of perfect. And then we can just iterate on it and add new features. But I don't want to be one of those libraries that releases a new major version every three weeks or whatever. So just trying to make sure that I feel like it's stable. That's fair enough. Yeah, I I've, I remember, uh, and partially this is because I, I go back and forth between a Tailwind project and a Bootstrap project. But I, I do remember being like, um, you know, some of those classes like rounded, for example, is like, well, which one's you know, like fully rounded or just slight corner rounding and stuff like that. Yeah. I can definitely see like the clarity there. My, my trouble was like bootstrap has some of the similar classes. And then I'm always like confused between their weird naming and like you guys always have the more intuitive naming, but there's like D flex and uh, you know, the other display classes in bootstrap yeah. are like prefixed with d hyphen and they're just not as as clear but um it is nice to see that because I, I bought a bought a bootstrap theme from the store recently um and used it on go rails and uh th- it was fun to see this theme because the majority of it was implemented with utility classes and it made yeah. it so much easier to tweak everything so yeah i'm, I'm excited to see that approach being used in a lot of cases um just it just makes things so much easier to tweak when you're like i need a little bit more padding here and you can just change it without having to dive into the css and jump between files you just like edit the html refresh your browser and you're good yeah it's definitely cool for sure it's cool to see like bootstrap trending in that direction more too yeah um i've always really liked bootstrap and we definitely sort of borrowed some naming stuff from bootstrap too, because as someone who's like used it for so long, I wanted to, I wanted the new stuff that I was doing to sort of feel familiar and not be fighting with old habits too much. Um, so definitely a big inspiration and learned a lot from the team that's, that's worked on that. So, yeah. And I think, I think you'll have the benefit of, like you were saying, hoping not to have, you know, a 2.0 release at some point. Um, because your classes are very fine grained, you're not like, you know, adding cards and popovers and alerts and whatever. Like you, you have almost only one name that you can really decide on one or two for each of those. Yeah. For makes sure. it a little easier. Um, that did remind me of something. Um, what are your thoughts on like the best way to sort of strip down all of these generated styles for production. I know like one of the main things is removing like colors you don't use. Um, are there any yeah. other like tools or approaches for that? Yeah. So um, the approach that I use that I would recommend people use is to use this tool called purge CSS, which basically is a tool for scanning all of your templates and removing any CSS classes that you don't actually use from your CSS. And it sounds kind of like, it sounds like scary at first because it's easy to think like, how could it possibly work? You know, like there's so many different 
ways I could be adding classes. How could it possibly reliably work? How could it catch every situation? And the reality is that it can't catch every situation, but the way it works is actually so brain dead, dumb, and simple that it makes it really easy to build a mental model of what it's going to do and make it easy to author your templates in a way that it will always work hundred percent. Um, so it doesn't like actually parse your HTML into like an abstract syntax tree and look for classes, or it doesn't like scan your react JSX files and like run them as JavaScript to see if you're doing string concatenation and stuff. Literally all it does is scan your templates or whatever you provide to it. So like, JSX files, for example, would be kind of included here. It looks through all that stuff. Um, you provided a regex. It kind of has a default one, but you can customize it and you kind of do need to customize it with Tailwind because we use some odd characters and some of the class names. But basically it just like splits the whole template up based on this regex into strings that are separated by spaces, essentially. And if um and then it kind of looks at your CSS and it looks through this class and tries to see like, can I find this class as a token anywhere in any of these template files? If so, it'll keep it. Um, so what that means is like, if you have a class called hello and you have like a paragraph in your site that starts with the word hello, it'll keep the hello class because it found a match for hello. Like it's not specifically looking for classes or trying to be smart about that. It's literally trying to be as dumb as possible. Like, does this string exist? So as long as you're not doing anything super clever, like concatenating class names or, you know, you, you know, doing weird stuff with variables to like dynamically create the class names in, in your markup, then it will work really reliably. And worst case scenario, you can always like whitelist classes and stuff like that. So that's what I use. And it makes it really easy to take like, you know, maybe like a 40 kilobyte gzipped Tailwind CSS file and bring it down like four kilobytes uh, gzipped. So it's a it's a really productive way of being able to keep all the class names available, do all the kind of stuff you want, and then still end up with the absolute minimum CSS file uh, when you're done. So that's the way that I would approach it. If you're working on a project where there is like a lot of complex, fancy, dynamic class generation um, that's kind of already there and you want to introduce Tailwind uh, after the fact. There's other ways to kind of limit your Tailwind file size by just being selective about which features are enabled, making sure that you're not generating colors that you're not using, not generating breakpoints that you're not using, stuff like that. Uh, but even then, one of the things that I'm going to be working on for probably the next point release after 1.0 comes out is sort of integrating Purge CSS into Tailwind in an intelligent way where we can run Purge CSS just against the classes Tailwind would generate while completely ignoring any of your own CSS. So that way, even if you're pulling it in on a legacy project, um, you should be able to use Purge CSS to strip down Tailwind's sort of contribution to your CSS um, because any of the, sort of the legacy baggage with dynamic class generation and stuff shouldn't be happening with Tailwind's classes anyways. So that should hopefully be a way to make that a little bit more... Um, available to people working on any type of project in a little bit of a safer way, I guess. That that purge CSS approach is pretty crafty. I had like um I didn't realize that's how it how it worked. And you kind of you are okay with false positives there where it might keep a few classes that maybe it detected on accident or something. Yeah. But you just don't ever want it to remove things that you're actually using. So yeah, that's exactly. pretty cool. 
It's a great, yeah. great approach. Uh, and super simple too. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the thing that I like about it the most is just how simple it is. Like it's one of those tools where if you first told me about it, I would feel like scared of it, but because of how simple it is, like if the maintainer stopped working on it, I feel like I would feel totally comfortable just maintaining it myself because I just know conceptually it's not like a really intimidating mental model. You know, it's like literally as dumb as it could possibly be. Um, and because of that, it's really easy to work with. So, yeah. Very cool. Jason, any other last questions? No. Uh, Adam, thanks for joining us. I think I heard you say one time that you, so you have a podcast full stack radio. I think you said one time you started it so you could like talk to the people you would normally get to talk to. Yeah, totally. Uh, so yeah, that's like totally my case, like fanboy, whatever. I'm glad you got to come on the show because it's been awesome chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me guys. All right, Chris, wrap it up. See you next time. Uh, yeah. Uh, Adam, you have any, uh, links you want to share for anyone listening? Uh, I mean, nothing really new, I guess. Like if, uh, if you're interested in tailwind, check out tailwindzss.com. And, uh, if you're interested in checking out my podcast, that's at fullstackradio.com. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. And I guess we'll talk to you next week, Jason. See ya.